This is The Guardian. Today, 33 hours inside the NHS. One cardiac, four beats, one neurosurge, one gynae, seven for surgery, and our current 12-hour breach risk is at 9.57 for medicine. So it's now 33 months since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 to be a pandemic. Andrew Gregory is The Guardian's health editor. And for the past few weeks, he and his colleagues have been on the front lines of the UK's health system. So we decided to spend 33 hours inside the NHS, effectively reporting on both the impact of the disease and the current state of the health service. We decided to spend time in one area of the country so we could see how all different types of health services interact with each other. How are you with needles and things like that? Do they bother you? They've spent time in GP's offices, pharmacies, ambulances, and spent a whole day at the King's College Hospital in South London. We are under pressure this morning. We've got a lot of patients in ED with little space to see new patients, so we need to get some early movement. From the moment we arrived at the hospital, it was clear that staff trying their best in very difficult conditions were under enormous strain. And that was apparent from the first beds meeting of the day. It's like a really horrific board game and you can never quite get past one place. The NHS got the UK through the COVID-19 pandemic. But as the rest of the country has slowly returned to normal life, the sense of crisis inside the health system has only deepened. Strikes today by paramedics and nurses might push it even closer to breaking point. The waiting room was ram. I've never seen it like that. Trolleys were just piling up in the hallway and nurses can only do so much. And then I was in A&E well over, I'd say about 16 hours before I got a bed on the ward. The NHS is on its knees. This episode is about why and what that slow collapse looks like. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, with the worst of the COVID pandemic over, why is this winter the hardest yet for the NHS? Andrew, your day at the King's College Hospital in London started with the morning beds meeting. What were the main challenges that staff were facing that day? I think the main challenges for the staff in that meeting were the sheer numbers of patients requiring beds, those patients coming into the hospital, both via the emergency department, but also for elective care, and the problem of finding enough beds for all of those patients. You see, they've already got patients waiting in ED. They've got no definite discharges. An emergency demand that will be 15. And that central issue facing King's Hospital, but also hospitals elsewhere in the country, I think is the central one that staff are grappling with this winter. Three to come out of ITU, five waiting in ED, so she's already, even if all of her discharges come off, at best case scenario, minus 19 beds for the day, worst case minus 23. 
what did the staff at these hospitals tell you about dealing with the burden of so many sick people and just not having the resources to treat them properly? Well, staff told me during the reporting that they're frightened and they're disheartened at their inability to provide care for all of those people that need it. The healthcare system was set up to provide care in this country for everyone free at the point of need. Uh, But at the moment, NHS staff are quite honest about the fact that they just cannot provide that. My name is Dr Emer Sutherland and I'm the Clinical Director for Emergency Care at King's College Hospital, Denmark Hill. We're busier than we've ever been. We've got increasing numbers of patients coming to the emergency department. The staff are really committed to delivering really high quality, really rapid, really patient-centred care and they want to be able to spend the time explaining, they want to be able to spend that extra five, ten minutes with every patient but they're just not able to with all the demands at the moment. There's definitely a mental health impact on staff unable to provide the care they want. We know that during the 33 months we've had COVID as a challenge, that focus of staff in the healthcare service has more or less been narrowly focused on COVID. And now they face this additional challenge of getting patients through difficult operations An added challenge facing NHS staff that we spoke to is that the conditions people need healthcare for, whether it's that hip operation or that knee replacement surgery, very often those conditions are deteriorating while they're on the waiting list. And so that means when they eventually get into hospital, patients are actually presenting in a more complicated way, which makes surgery riskier, it makes surgery harder to perform and also means waiting lists for everyone are likely to rise. So let me see if I understand this properly. Like, it's not only that we're seeing a huge number of people presenting at these hospitals, but they're presenting sicker than they would have been before the pandemic. Why is that? I think it's definitely true to say that patients generally are presenting in in a less healthy state than they were in 2019. And the main reason for that is that Certainly in the first year or so of the pandemic, many people stayed away from healthcare services. And what that has meant is that there's been this huge build-up of conditions. Some of those conditions have yet to be discovered. Some have been discovered, but at a very late stage. And that means that when patients tend to present to the system, whether that's in the emergency department, whether that's via an ambulance and a 999 call, typically they are now sicker when they arrive in the healthcare system. Obviously straight away they're telling me that I'm going to be admitted, which I knew anyway, and then I was like, am I going to go to a ward soon? Am I going to go to a ward? I was in there 7 o'clock that evening. I went to a ward, I think, 11 o'clock the next morning, and it was only because I actually got up and spoke to a nurse explaining how I was struggling to breathe that they kind of rushed me through. Andrew, that's inside the hospitals, but of course, they're just one, albeit critical, part of the NHS. And you've spent time in its other parts, starting with GP's clinics. Your colleague, Dennis Campbell, visited a practice in Brixton. What did you learn about the conditions that GPs are facing at the moment? 
So the pressures aren't just evident in hospitals, they are also extremely evident in general practice. And what we found was that with the record waiting times for treatment in hospitals, GPs are now also spending more time caring for patients who are stuck in the NHS backlog. And also this new threat, if you like, or emerging threat of multimorbidity. So that's where Previously, you might have seen patients present at a GP surgery with one condition. We're now seeing evidence they're presenting with two or three. From eight o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock in the evening, I basically don't stop. One of the GPs we spoke to told my colleague Dennis Campbell that there were seeing upwards of 60, 70 or even 80 patients on some days. Uh, the only things I stop for are two things. Uh, one, I might go to the toilet, uh, but even that... I don't always. And the other thing is uh, when I microwave a meal, and even then I'll normally do emails when I'm microwaving my meal. Here we go. The bottom line around pressures for GPs has actually made the job impossible to be full-time. And we have no full-time GPs at this practice at all. The pressures are leaving GPs in a, in a really demoralised state. And what we're seeing is that... GPs are quitting the health service in record numbers. They all know that they need more of them, more colleagues, not just GPs, but nurses and allied health professionals within GP surgeries to make general practice work. But we're not seeing those numbers increase. And in fact, in 2015, the government pledged to hire 5,000 more GPs within five years. A month after the general election, I'm keeping my pledge to announce the first steps in a new deal for general practice. We need to increase and fill our GP training places to encourage medical students to choose general practice. But that number actually went down instead of up. And with fewer GPs around to meet this soaring demand for care, more and more are quitting because they feel they cannot provide the service that is needed and they're really frightened in some cases of missing potentially serious issues. And you said that some GPs are having to deal with more serious illnesses than they, they should be dealing with because the hospitals are full. I'm wondering, does it also go the other way? Like as people have less and less access to their GP, do they end up in hospital for things that are potentially quite minor? Yeah, absolutely. So the pressures in GP surgeries and the pressures in hospitals, our reporting showed, are closely related and have an impact on each other. So we know that there are millions of people in the UK who are struggling to get GP appointments. It took me 88 phone calls to actually get through on a constant redial on my phone. Um, took me 45 minutes. Wendy from Wingham near Canterbury isn't alone. Patients across the southeast are struggling to see their doctor. And as a result, some of those will not have serious medical conditions diagnosed until it's perhaps too late. But at the same time, it also means that patients with more minor illnesses or ailments often end up adding to the pressure on hospitals. The other aspect is that Physicians in hospitals are referring back to GP surgeries, cases of patients that they should be dealing with. One example which really struck me during the reporting was hospitals 
now actually referring patients with really serious disorders like anorexia back to GPs to manage. Anorexia is not typically a condition that GPs should be managing. Once they've diagnosed or referred to the hospital, that should be the end of their relationship with those patients. But such is the pressure on hospitals, they're asking GPs in some cases to take over the management of these patients. And GPs are really nervous because it's not their specialty. And so that really was a frightening prospect that came out of our reporting. Your reporting also found that this spillover was not just happening between GPs and hospitals, but that some people were also presenting with really serious illnesses to pharmacies and trying to get help there. I've never seen in my reporting on the NHS evidence of patients with serious, urgent care issues presenting to pharmacists. And yet what we found in our reporting was that for the first time that is happening, that patients with critical conditions in some cases with mental health issues have decided there's no other option but to present to pharmacists and that is either because they've been able to access GP surgery advice or they can't make it to hospitals. One pharmacist we spoke to in South London told us how they now regularly see people come through the door of their once sleepy pharmacy with serious conditions that need urgent attention and in some cases the pharmacist told us they were so concerned by the state of the patients coming through the door that they themselves have actually taken those patients to A&E in their own vehicle. We're getting people coming into us when they're struggling to get appointments with their GP, we're getting people coming to us because they're frightened to go to the hospital and actually they're very seriously ill but they just want some advice. So I almost felt like we became a sort of mini A&E in our pharmacy. We're seeing lots of different types of people with lots of different ailments. Sometimes it's minor illnesses, sometimes it can be even more serious things. They've got chest pain, they've got an ulcer or a wound that they're worried about. Lots of mental health problems really coming into our pharmacy in a way that we've never seen people come in before and ask for our advice. Wow, God, that's incredible. I mean, what can pharmacists do in that situation? It must put them in such a heartbreaking position to just not be able to offer the care that people need. It's enormously difficult for health professionals like pharmacists when they find themselves in a situation like that because, of course, they're not trained to deal with urgent and emergency care issues. They can provide the best advice they can. They can signpost patients to the services that are best equipped to deal with those sorts of cases. But in many of the cases, staff would tell us that these patients had already tried these other services and there was literally nowhere else to go. Another aspect of our reporting showed that Patients are now increasingly facing difficulties accessing treatments and often having to go to multiple pharmacies to get a prescription they might have been getting for months or years, or even in some cases having to return to their GP to be prescribed an alternative drug. And some of those medicines we were told that are in short supply of serious conditions, and those sorts of medicines included pain relief drugs, antipsychotic drugs and inhalers and even insulin in some cases. What you're talking about here 
just sounds like a failure at every point in this system. And as one point, say hospitals fail or get overcrowded, they end up putting pressure on GPs and pharmacies, which sends pressure back towards the hospitals. And then there are the other parts of this system, like community health services, the nurses and therapists who deliver care for long-term illnesses in people's homes. On top of that, there's social care in people's houses or care homes for those who need extra help. How do they play into this crisis? So one of the um, beds managers in the hospital we spoke to, Richard, told us that the crisis in social care is having an acute pressure on hospital because they cannot discharge patients quickly enough out of hospital. Best case, so if all those 22 queries come off, he will be minus 28 beds. And that's because there aren't enough spaces in the community or in care homes to get people home. So that is, what would you say, Richard? <laughs> bad day in the office. laughing. Yeah, he always laughs when it's really, really bad. Things, you know you're in trouble. Um, what we'll do now... Not everyone leaving hospital will actually need or go into a care home. Some will simply require health care at home. But the pressures we saw on those kind of services with district nurses facing a national shortage also mean there's further pressure on hospitals. Yeah, I've been in this room now for about three months. Um, it'd be nice to get out, yeah. I thought I was reasonably healthy, but now I'm more than invalid, really. We haven't got a day for me going home, but there's a lady in today observing. She's from the care company. She's about the fourth person that's come in. It's imminent, but it's not quite there yet. When people do get really sick, they have to go to hospital, and they most often do that by, by, of course, ambulance. And we've heard on the news that there have been huge delays in ambulance waiting times. And as part of this project, your colleague Dennis Campbell spent time with paramedics. What kind of impact did he find there? Dennis Campbell found that there's record levels of demand for ambulance services, and that's because more and more people very simply need urgent or emergency care the time pressures really came across in our reporting. So if you look at the bar across the top, we've got one ambulance en route to hospital, three already here, two waiting to hand over, so that means we've got two ambulance crews who have not yet been released from the patient they brought to us. We found that almost one in seven ambulance patients in England are now waiting more than an hour to be handed over to A&E teams at hospitals and nearly one in three patients are waiting at least half an hour. More than an hour. So if they're coming to hospital with some kind of emergency, they're potentially having to wait 30 minutes or one hour before they can actually make it to a hospital bed. Absolutely. So, and, and that is the, the frightening reality of the front line of the NHS at the moment. Now, it's important to stress that when those paramedics arrive at hospital with those patients seeking emergency care, the decision makers inside the emergency departments will make very quick decisions on who needs to be almost fast-tracked into the emergency department and which patients it may be possible to hold, if you like. But one thing that is clear is that because often those patients can't be left, paramedics are having to stay with them 
that creates a huge backlog with ambulances often parked up outside hospitals, unable to attend other 999 calls, which further increases the strain on the whole healthcare system. In the department at the moment, the longest wait is two hours, and that's in both adults and children's. Um, I think I last counted 28 details we've got for that at the moment. Um, when we first arrived at King's Hospital, it was clear that in the morning meeting, there were pressures on the hospital already, but by lunchtime, those pressures had exacerbated. Um, we've only got one space now in recess with everywhere else currently full. The numbers of people in the emergency department had increased by about 50%, and it was clear that there was even greater pressure on staff in the afternoon because they having to find more beds for more patients with no end in sight. We've got 15 adults waiting to be seen and 18 paediatrics waiting to be seen. Staff remains the same, nurses, doctors reported earlier, so we're Coming up, how the NHS is making a dent in its patient backlog. Andrew, you were telling me earlier how the pandemic put a pause on virtually everything other than COVID. And that meant that when the pandemic did finally ease, there was this rush of people presenting to hospitals and GPs far sicker than they would have been if they'd been able to access treatment earlier. What kind of toll is that flood of patients having on this system? So COVID has taken a huge toll on the NHS in two significant ways. The first is the impact of the disease itself. It's left thousands of healthcare workers with long-term physical and mental health issues, which meant there's fewer staff to perform the work that's needed now. So, uh, you know, that was the first way. I think I came to hospital on the 13th of April, 2020. And I thought I was coming for a few days. I parked a few toiletries thinking a few days I'll be out. I just started a whole new journey. From COVID, I've been left with scarring lungs. Mm -hmm. So I'm all sort of going to be always breathless. The second big impact of COVID has been to dramatically increase the level of the backlog facing the NHS in England, with 7.2 million people waiting for elective care in England alone. And that includes things like knee replacement surgery and hip operations. So in short, after 33 months of COVID-19, you've got a depleted, exhausted, smaller workforce facing a much bigger, more complicated intray of work. Mm. I mean, a waiting list of 7.2 million people is difficult to even fathom. How was the hospital coping with that? What kind of action were they taking to try to bring down their own backlog? And was it working? Kings, like all other hospitals, are facing this enormous challenge of how to bring down the backlog as quickly and safely as possible. And there is actually some success here nationally across the NHS. And there's a couple of ways they're achieving that. One is to quickly identify the number of patients that have been waiting the longest. So those potentially waiting 18 months or even in some cases over two years and fast tracking them through the system to get them treated earlier. Um, nothing in recovery. CPOD has only got three patients on it. Hospitals are also harnessing new technology to streamline the waiting lists. 
They can very cleverly work out how many types of patients requiring specific types of operations they can fit into one day. Um, but staffing is green and amber. Okay, lovely. That's a good start. And so they've streamlined their daily operating theatre list a lot more effectively than perhaps they were doing so before the pandemic. And the third thing they're doing is just throwing huge numbers of staff at the problem and actually starting to use Saturdays and Sundays in a way we've never seen before. And so in this story that's otherwise really grim, I mean, this sounds like a small island of success. I think it is fair to paint it as a ray of hope for the NHS going forward. The problem they'll face, though, is that even though they are genuinely making inroads into the backlog, the number of people on the waiting list is still actually likely to go up, not down, for some significant time, just because of the sheer numbers of people discovering conditions and ailments. One of the perhaps more stark comments a physician made to us was that some patients are now waiting so long on the waiting list that their conditions are becoming untreatable. And this week, of course, paramedics and nurses are planning to go on strikes and outstanding pay disputes mean that that might happen a lot over the next few months. And I'm guessing that that will only deepen the strain on the system. Yes, we've seen reports uh, that cancer services and other crucial areas of healthcare will undoubtedly be impacted upon by the action that some but not all healthcare workers are taking. But that said, the healthcare workers that spoke to us feel very conflicted about what's going to happen in terms of strikes and pay disputes and how they feel about working in the NHS. Many of them only went into the NHS to care for people, to provide top quality healthcare, and yet they are looking around, there's fewer of them to provide that healthcare. Many of them have experienced real-term pay cuts for about a decade. And so they're getting to the end of the day and just realising they're telling us they can't do it anymore. This is a hospital we're normally really busy. We're normally very used to running in a highly pressurised environment. I think the difference this winter is people didn't have a break in the summer. So there was no let up in work and also we are coming off the back of two Covid winters so I think people are tired and I think there is a natural dread is the wrong word but I think people are I'm anxious and I manage the site and I'm anxious about what winter might bring and how much worse all of this could look You know listening to you and reading your reporting It's almost more surprising that this system, under so much pressure, so under-resourced, is able to do as much as it does. What is it that allows this system to continue persevering in the face of so many challenges? I think it's the strength of the teams working together. Many of the NHS staff we met have worked alongside each other for years, if not decades And there's this feeling which came across in our reporting of that they're all in it together. I've been on this ward before, so I know a lot of the staff. And I think they're brilliant. I think they're very rushed off their feet. You know, they are 
working hard and I think they're amazing. It's easy for people to judge that aren't in the hospital, that aren't a patient, that don't see like the work that they do. It's a vocation. They're not doing it for the money. They're not doing it for the prestige. They're doing it because they want to provide world-class healthcare. You do not know the work that they have to do. You do not know the struggles that they have every day with whatever resources they have. It is hard and I do see it. They're still providing an incredible service. In some cases, they're saving lives without us even knowing it. But the challenge they face will not go away without that workforce plan that so many people feel we desperately need. Andrew, thank you so much. No problem at all. That was Andrew Gregory, The Guardian's health editor. You can read more about this series he did with Dennis Campbell, our health policy editor, at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Eva Krisiak, Maeve Shearlaw and Adam Sitch. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Homer Kalili. And we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.